This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. A guy named Justin Cox played, I was going to say plays, but played football for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, or at least had been signed to play for them, and ended up being charged with domestic violence for allegedly beating up his girlfriend, I think it was. Anyway, yesterday or the day before, the trial was held and charges were dismissed and the judge found basically almost no evidence to back up the charges. And the witnesses, if you look at the stories that are out about this, the witnesses back up the fact that Justin Cox, apparently in this case, really had nothing to do with what happened, at least according to the witnesses. And what else do we have? Well, this is how our courts of law work in this country and in the States and other places. You rely on the evidence that is in front of the court and you determine guilt or, in, or, or not guilt. We don't have innocence, not guilt, and not enough evidence. So anyway, professional football player, charged when he was charged several months ago, a couple months ago, the Rough Riders cut him, and the CFL said any team that tries to now sign him, we will not allow that contract to go through. He is a pariah. He is blackballed for the league. We are not going to allow him in. We don't want this kind of person playing in this league. But at the time, my question was, what happens if he didn't do it? Well, now we have to ask that answer that question for real, because according to the courts, he didn't do it. So did the CFL, did Saskatchewan Rough Riders, did they jump the gun, and is this the right way to handle athletes who get in trouble with the law? Bubba O'Neill joins me from CHCH. Bubba, thanks for doing this tonight. Good to hear your voice, there, Scott. It's been a while. Yes, it has. Busy time of the year. It's, oh, yeah, you, you think? We'll get to some of that other stuff in just a minute. But l- l- I want to talk about this Justin Cox thing first, because I find this really t- troubling in a certain sense. I don't know, we none of us were there. I don't know what Justin Cox did or did not do. All I know is that he doesn't have a job, and the courts say the reason he doesn't have a job is not accurate, that he didn't actually do the stuff that cost him his job. So what do we make of this? What do we do with this guy? You know, these these are tricky situations, uh, and these are tricky times for sports leagues right now, Scott. And the words of domestic violence, domestic abuse... They're um, toxic. They're, it, it Really, it, it's gone, and I'm not saying this to criticize leagues, but I, it's gone from really teams and leagues turning a blind eye, really, for many, many years, to maybe, perhaps, almost overreacting and... I'm, and I'm going to jump in because you're not saying, and I want to make clear because I don't want you to get in trouble for this. You're not saying overreacting to actual cases of domestic violence. You're talking about the accusations. Well, accusations and what teams are doing with their athletes during the accusations. That's what I mean. Yes, yes. And you know, and and in the United States, especially, maybe not so much here in this country. You know, it's you're 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 not guilty until proven guilty, right? I think that's, I think that's fair to say. And in this situation, the CFL made a judgment and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders made a judgment that would suggest that they believed their athlete or their player was guilty. Hence, he is not employed by the team any longer. And uh, Jeffrey Orridge, the commissioner of the league, issued a statement uh, reminding us all about the, the league's stance on domestic violence, which is, again, a very, very good thing. Now... They've put their foot in their mouth, have they not, in some respects? And this is why when we discuss this, and I remember we discussed this when this first came up, so probably, what, six weeks ago? Something like that, yeah. You know, that I thought the best thing to do for 
for all parties was to suspend the player. This way, he's not a distraction to the team. He's still getting paid. The legal process will go about its business, and then you can react. But that was not done as we as we well know now. Well, and the, the tricky part about this, or at least, you know, there is another charge that is waiting for him in the States, apparently. He's got another domestic assault charge in the States. And so that seems to be what the CFL is now pointing to, to say, well, it's, this is still an ongoing thing. Problem is... If he's not guilty of this one, why are we then assuming that he's guilty of that one? So I'm not defending a guy who beats his wife, not by a single stretch, but you just said it. You are innocent until proven guilty. And I I just don't understand how the league can say we're for what I believe is partially for PR purposes and partially because they want to be good humans. They are saying, we refuse to allow you to play with the specter of this hanging over your head. Well, that's fine, but I don't know that you should be firing a guy until you know what actually happened. Well, and and you said it right there, Scott, because the way I look at it, um, I mean, there are a few things in life that can be as bad as losing your employment. Especially when he doesn't have, by the sounds of it, a million other things he does as well as play football. This is his skill. Well, you're right. That's his skill, and... um, I mean, without getting too crazy about his bio or anything, I mean, he's obviously an American that did not make it anywhere playing in the National Football League. So, you know, in a situation like this, your 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 opportunities at employment are limited. And if the CFL squeezes him out, where is he going to play? It's, again, it's very difficult because you don't want to be endorsing people who have beaten their wives and 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 that's you know and i would i'd be the first one with you with a lot of other people we'd all be the first ones to line up if a guy is convicted of punching his wife ray rice for example you know the famous video in the elevator of ray rice slugging his wife was there a human being on the planet who didn't support the baltimore ravens and nfl's decision to ban him i don't think so i didn't hear one he never played again he hasn't played ever since and and that was clear cut. We saw what happened. We understood. The evidence was in front of us. We saw that he had hit his wife. And I don't remember anybody being upset that he was, other than him, that he was not able to play. But again, how do you as how do you come down on a guy who's not been convicted of this? Who's not that this conviction that got that cost him his job didn't? It, it's as if it never happened because he was found not guilty. I I just have I have a problem with. What seems to be uh, more of a, as I say, more of a PR move than a fairness move. And, and imagine for a second that, and I think I used this example before, imagine for a second that you're walking down the halls of CHCH and there's just two of you in the hallway, and for some reason that person says, Bubba slugged me. And you say, No, I didn't. Is it fair until the facts are determined to say, Bubba, you know what? Not only are you off the air, you are fired. We don't even need to hear the evidence. As long as you've been accused of this, you are fired. That, to me, is, I don't mind them saying, while we're sorting this out, you're going to be off the air doing administrative work or doing nothing. But to say you're fired indicates that they believe the evidence before the evidence is presented. And and, and again, that becomes very dangerous to me because uh, last time I checked, and I'm sure that each professional football team uh, whether it be the NFL or the CFL, in this particular instance, has a lawyer, a set of lawyers that they can run through. But I don't know if they have criminal lawyers. And to make a decision on what would have been a criminal case, 
on on behalf of the team and on the athlete, and then as you said, basically saying you're guilty uh, was just a little too quick for my liking. I said it then, and I'll say it now. And obviously, what's happened has become very, very unfortunate, in in my opinion, at this point. Oh, neither of us are lawyers, but at some point, if this second one turns out to not be legit, or at least to not be found guilty. I don't know what leg the CFL would have to stand on to continue to bar him, and if they tried to, I have to believe that he would have grounds for some kind of lawsuit that you don't want me, and it's based on something that didn't happen. I will, we'll have to see what happens if and when that goes away as well. But anyway, let me jump to another topic. Equally violent discussion, in a sense. We have seen this year already more than a few pitchers throwing balls in the major leagues at batters. We've seen batters being plunked left, right, and center, and not like guys that you don't care about. We saw Bautista, the ball go behind him. We've seen pitches thrown behind Manny Machado, a star in Baltimore. And this week we saw Bryce Harper get drilled, apparently, because he had the audacity two years ago to three. hit three years ago to hit two home runs off the pitcher who's been carrying a grudge now for three <laughs> years and decided, you know what, I'm so mad about this guy still, I'm going to drill him with a ball at 95 miles an hour. I don't, i got to be honest with you, not everyone loves Bryce Harper. I don't blame him one bit for rushing the mound and trying to beat the pulp out of the guy. Well, absolutely, and this was, you know... This made for good visuals. I'll say that that much because the anger was unbelievable. Because I mean, and you're a big baseball guy. Generally, when pitchers are going to throw a purpose pitch, or they're going to they're going to hit someone for whatever the reasoning is, and even if it's for something that you know that happened a game before, generally it's it's in the lower half of the body, and generally it's uh, you know it's an eighty miler. This guy threw 98 and hit Harper hard, and that could have that stung and for I mean, no reason. For, for no reason. For, for virtually no reason. And I'll tell you this: uh, Major League Baseball Network. There was an analyst that was uh, discussing and breaking down the situation. And I, I don't know if too many of your li- your listeners actually saw or list- listened to this breakdown, which I thought was really, I thought in- interesting, in the sense that if you could replay. 20 brawls over the time or over history. And generally when the pitcher hits the batter and the batter approaches the mound, the catcher will go after the batter and hold him off. In this situation, Buster Posey who was the catcher for the Saint for the San Francisco Giants, when Strickland hit Harper, he stayed he 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 stayed still. Maybe he felt this was so stupid I'm going to let my guy take a few shots to the head to beat some sense into him. I think I I think well from what the analyst was thinking was that this he he thought Strickland was doing this on his own and was going to let him do whatever he, you know in terms of defending himself or fighting that he was going to do it on his own and that no one was going to help him in this situation because this wasn't something that was ordered from the dugout this wasn't something that was preordained and discussed this was a personal vendetta against Harper from pitcher to a, a, an unassuming player in Harper, and that he was just going to let him do whatever he, he had to do. But this apparently is part of, and I, you know, I, I hate this stuff. But this is apparently part of the code, even though I think even this falls out of the code. But if you're now going to throw a projectile at 98 miles an hour, a hard projectile, if anyone's ever been hit by a baseball, 
And I don't think any of the listeners have ever been hit by one at 98 miles an hour. Even if you've played baseball, it was probably in the 70s, and it still hurts like crap. Sure. Um, I've been drilled by one. It hurts. And the point is, if if you are now, because you're upset that another player on the other team succeeded, and your response to their success against you is to drill a projectile at them. Someone I heard bring this up, and I thought it was a perfect example. Why in the world, in Game 1 of the Stanley Cup Finals, when the Penguins scored the go-ahead goal, did Pekka Rinne, the goalie for Nashville, not skate out to center ice and take a wild swing with his stick at the chest of the guy who scored the goal? Because that's the same thing. You beat me, therefore I am entitled to injure you. I don't. It's so stupid that it doesn't. I mean, it, think about it in the context of any other sport. If you beat me, I am entitled by the quote quote code to injure you in response. No, uh, it, it, it's absolutely ridiculous. And again, we, we we agree that in pro sports sometimes things get really heated, and boys will be boys, and sometimes there will be fisticuffs and punches thrown, or disagreements, or face on face, you know, confrontations. But this one again, people think, as you said, not only does throwing a ninety-eight mile an hour fa- uh, fastball and having the ball hit you hurt, it's also dangerous. Very dangerous. You know, it, it's very dangerous. And and Manny Machado was. As as belligerent and and crazy as his last press conference was when he was uh, nearly hit, I guess a couple of you know a couple of weeks ago, and made the statement of, I would be suspended for a year if I took my baseball bat and attacked a pitcher, and it may have to come down to this, Scott. I can't believe I'm saying this, but if if, if you're going to throw 98 at me and hit me, well then I maybe I should come after you with my baseball bat. Well, okay, so this is the question, though, because this always becomes a thing, especially in the American League. Pitchers are protected. You can't do anything to the pitcher, and yet they're the one holding the weapon, and they're apparently, because baseball won't ever come down hard on a guy. I mean, they gave, what's his face, who threw it at Bryce Harper, six games. He's a relief pitcher. He might have pitched in three of those. So it's a three-game suspension, maybe, for throwing a weapon at a dangerous way at a player. Why should pitchers be protected? I said this before on the show. As far as I'm concerned, any pitcher who hits a batter must go up to bat next inning. And then let's see how many guys even try to do that. Let's see, because now if you're a little frightened, that you know what, the pitchers know, the guys in baseball know, if you threw one and it got away and it just happened to slip, and you know they know if you intended to hit a guy or not. And if you didn't intend to, you're pretty sure, okay, I can go up to bat and I'm going to be okay. But if you know that you, and if they know you tried to hit them, and you got to go up to bat next inning, Maybe you got a big pair of brass ones, and you don't mind taking a fastball right off the ribs. But I think most pitchers are going to say that's not worth it for me. It's well, not so much fun when I actually have to pay the piper instead of just giving the one giving out the punishment. Sure, and the tough thing to think, even though this was a National League there too, it's a reliever, and chances are he would not have been in the ninth no. inning in this in this game. He had the it was the perfect setting for him. You know, bottom of the eighth, eighth inning. This is the last time I'm going to see you, and I'm going to do this, and I can get away with it because, like you said, no one can go after me in in this situation. Same and thing I, as last year, or two years ago, whatever it was with Bautista when they waited till the last at bat in Texas, and they brought out. Uh, a felon guy, and he uh, just out of prison to throw 100 miles an hour into Bautista. Same thing. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's, it, I think this is something that needs to be looked at and reviewed, and I know this kind of behavior has gone on for years and years and years in baseball, but at times it deteriorates into, I think, and I'll use the word, 
the word childish, I think, at times. And like I said, the visuals were great because, you know, sometimes in these brawls or whatever, it becomes nothing more than a push fest. But this one was an actual, you know, punches being thrown, people being hit in the head. I mean, Strickland, I, I don't know if you, you saw the end of it. It took three players, three of his own players, to get him off the field after, you know, after punches were thrown. He was so enraged. Um, and to me, again, for the reasons of what he did it for, to me, it's, it's insane. And then he had the nerve when asked to say, well, I was just throwing inside. Yeah, right. <laughs> throwing. He was trying to put it inside Bryce Harper. Be a man and fess up and say, yeah, I want to kerplunk him for the, him staring me down for those two home runs he hit off me three years ago. And you want to know the funny part about this? And when I say funny, it's ironic. He could have said that, and he could have followed up that question by saying, and you know what? I don't have to go up to bat. So na 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 He could have done that, and what are you going to do about it? <laughs> he could have taunted him, and there's nothing you can do about it. What are you going to do? Keep throwing it at his teammates? What does he care if you throw it at his teammates? Make him go up to bat and face it. The only thing I would like, if I had one question to ask Bryce Harper, I would like to ask him about throwing his helmet at Strickland. That was a horrible throw. It, 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 did it slip out of his hand? I don't know, but he almost hit his own first base coach. <laughs> was it one of those things that like he was going to throw it at him and then the better part of him sort of in, in, in mid-throw said, I can't do this, so it ended up going sideways? <laughs> if I had one question that I was able to ask Bryce Harper, it would be, can I please borrow your hair for a weekend? <laughs> That guy's got the best hair on the planet. I don't know. He's uh, He's got a lot of it. Anyway, listen, Bubba, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this tonight. Good time, Scott. Good to hear from you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Got a press release yesterday that the Canadian arts community, this is, of course, Canada's 150th, and it also happens to be the 100th anniversary of the death of Tom Thompson. Now, Tom Thompson was one of the group of seven. As a child, I actually had a, not an original, otherwise I probably wouldn't be working now. I would have sold it and lived in riches. But I had a print of a Tom Thompson in my bedroom. Tom Thompson was one of the group of seven. He was, I think, the first one to die. I'm not sure. But it's 100 years since he died. He died in 1917. He was believed to have drowned up in Algonquin Park. And so what is happening for the 150th and for the 100th of his death is that uh, 11 of Canada's rising artists are being sent out to Algonquin Park to essentially, I don't know, to, not to imitate Tom Thompson, but to inject themselves into the spirit of the group of seven. Go out into the northern wilderness and do some painting yourself. And I don't think they're supposed to be, again, imitating the kind of work, but we're going to have a new generation of Canadian wildlife painters or at least samples of it. It's a really, really interesting idea. However, there is an interesting, a more interesting idea as far as I'm concerned, something that I found fascinating from a Hamilton couple. They are not, well, they are art lovers, but they are also amateur detectives. They're not detectives by training, as far as I know, but boy, oh boy, do they do a good job at doing detective work because what they've done over a number of years is gone into the wilderness, Algonquin Park or other places around, and track down the actual locations of the group of seven paintings. 
There's a cliff that's being painted on some lake. They have gone and found it, snapped a picture, and eventually put together an entire book of the paintings, the prints of the paintings, next to a photo of the real thing. It's a fascinating, fascinating study because you see two things. One, how good the group of seven was. But two, all these places actually exist in our outdoors. The group of seven, part of what made them so special was for more than a generation, for the world, they introduced people to Canada's rugged wilderness. They showed how beautiful Canada's outdoors was. All these places, as this book shows, are real. Trouble is, this is not an easy task. Imagine for a second how you would go and find these places. The group of seven did not leave treasure maps how to get to the various locations. These are not, there are no notations on the back saying, oh, by the way, these are at these coordinates. You had to do all the detective work. Well, Jim and Sue Waddington, who are these detectives, who also are the authors of a book, In the Steps of the Group of Seven, join me now. Jim and Sue, how are you tonight? Wonderful. Great to see you. Thank you for coming on. Listen, let me get right to the question that's been driving me nuts all day since I knew you were coming on. How in the world do you find the places? Well, every one of them is different. Um, We um, like canoeing and we like... uh, map reading. We like the sport of orienteering, which is a map reading sport, and, and we like their art. So what we do is we, uh, each winter, we uh, pick a few paintings that we'd like to find um, that summer, and we plan, we look at maps and try to figure out where it is that the um, painting was done, and then we plan our canoe trip um, and go there, and maybe we're right, maybe we're wrong. <laughs> well, some of them I'm I'm sure, because some of the names give away big hints. There are some that have a lake name or a river name or something. So some of them, I would assume, would be a lot easier to find than others. Some of them have names like North, Northern Lake, or <laughs> Gray Day, or... <laughs> okay, those don't <laughs> help so time. much. <laughs> yes. but, but that That's true, though. They're, 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 most of them don't have a name that will actually uh, tell you where they are. But, but often there are hints that... Uh, you have to put together a, a lot of information. Um, Sue reads everything she can about the group, and uh, um, sometimes we find out that uh, they painted on a particular lake, and uh, um, then we see a painting that we think might have been done on that lake, and um, then we go and look. Okay, so let's use an example, because I believe in your book, uh, there was a painting by one of the group of seven, J.E.H. McDonald, and it's called Thompson's Rapids. So it's an actual place. So you know... At least to begin with, you know that there is a place by that name. You can narrow it down. But then wh- when you get that, how do you then begin to figure out where exactly you're going to go to find that? Well, we had some help with that one. Um, that was on private property, and the person knew the painting was from there, and they sort of told us where to go to find it. Yes, that, that's um, uh, an important point. Uh, once uh, people realized that we were doing this... Uh, We've learned a lot from them. Uh, many, many families uh, have stories uh, that they've heard from their mother or their father about uh, having seen one of the artists in some place or another, and uh, sometimes they tell us about that. But, but there isn't really a place called Thompson's Rapids. Uh, um, the, the painting was named that, but that doesn't appear on any map. But in that particular case, as Sue says, um, um, someone who... Um, actually had a copy of that painting, actually knew where it had been done, and, and sent us a note uh, after he saw 
uh, what we were doing and uh, and told us where to go and look. And that that's another thing. It was once you find one of them, um, there's often a number of other paintings done not far away. Have you ever had that happen where you're looking for one and all of a sudden you turn and look a different direction? You go, aha, there's one right there. Well, we had one um, Casson painting in uh, Bancroft area and uh, we were looking for a specific farmhouse and we thought we had found it on an abandoned old highway because they went along the highways or along the train routes. And so Jim got out of the car to take a picture and he was taking a picture of the farm and then he disappeared and I said, where did you go? And he said, the farm on the other side of the road was another picture. But that would indicate that the two of you between yourselves have memorized or at least photographed into your brain many, (laughs) if not all, of the group of seven's paintings. Jim more than me. (laughs) But is that correct? Like, would you see, could you possibly be walking down the street and actually recognize a place even if you hadn't prepared for that? If he knew it existed, he would know it was right. Hmm. But, but, but Sue should tell you about how many art, works of art there are. Um, it's it's a phenomenal. There's hundreds and thousands of pictures that we don't know exist because the painters painted so many, and the ones that are in the books are all the same. Like every book on the Group of Seven has the same iconic pictures that you see over and over again. And so... If you can get information on private ones or ones that are sold at auction, you can start to get an inventory of possible ones to look for that you'd never heard of before. Are they easy to spot, though, when you get them? Are most of the places that are in the paintings, do they still look pretty much like then, now? It depends on the painting. Like there's some floral or forestry ones we would never find, pictures into the woods or into a bunch of trees and that sort of thing. But if they have any distinguishing features like old mills or old houses or or mountains in the background and things like that, they're pretty accurate, except um, we just had a canoe trip in early May in Killarney Park to look for two of Cassins, and uh, we had been in there about four years ago looking for one of them and found it, and then when we found the second one, we realized they were both done from the same area, but because of the growth of the trees, you can't see the same view from the top of the hill that you could before. There would be less trees in the way, so um, that does cause a problem, but you can often get the picture from lower down the hill sort of thing. You can get the same picture, but um, probably done from higher up. As you're paddling around, though, or as you're walking, or however you're getting to that, is it always, over the years that you've done this, when you recognize a spot, is it always an aha moment when you finally see it? Uh, no. Uh, uh, it, often, it, sometimes it is. It, and sometimes, of course, we, we, we find a place that we had no idea that we were going to find that one. We, we, we were aiming to find uh, one particular painting, and uh, on the way to get to that place, we find another one. That that ha- that's an aha one. But more often than not, we we um, have identified ahead of time where we think the painting was done, and then we uh, uh, navigate to that spot and uh, walk around. Once we finished our canoe as close as we can get to it, and then then climb a hill, um, and you sort of have to creep around and 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 look and and sometimes. Uh, 
the, the painter has chosen a very peculiar angle to, to mm. look at. And uh, um, I mean, some of the ones that were done in in, um, in, in villages rather than out on on, on lakes, uh, you you can see them right from the the, the city street, and 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 in, but often in a direction you never would have looked. Uh, um, you walk by it many many times before you actually see the place, see the view. Well, there is very little. I should maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it. there's very little art that would cause people's adrenaline to start pumping. But I'm wondering if that happens when you do find one that you've been searching for. Is it a huge adrenaline rush? Is it a big exciting thing to see? It? Oh yes, yes, yes. It it, it can be uh, very much that way. It, uh, um, in in particular, the 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 better known paintings. The, 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 we we have. Um, been <laughs> looking for for some paintings for for some time and and uh, uh, and, and and gone on trips that were were completely unsuccessful in finding it and then uh, one other time we'll go and we'll actually come to the place and and really be uh, it really is quite a thrill to, to to finally see the scene and and as you mentioned they really are often very very uh, close to what the the, the painter. Um, has, has represented on, on the art, and 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 as you, many people thought that these places really just didn't exist, um, that they thought that they were actually just made up, but that's not the case. They really really do they exist. Some of the painters are a little more um, free with their artists. Um, they can do their own thing with the paintings. Um, Casson does a lot of composites where he takes a lot of his favorite buildings and puts them together as a scene of several buildings. Um, Other ones are specific buildings which you can find easily, but when he has a grouping of buildings, it's often a composite that he's done from several of his favorites. How many have you found? Uh, Over 600. (laughs) I was thinking you were going to say 50 or 60. 600? Yeah. Over how many years have you been doing this? 40. 40. Okay, so where does the were you sitting in a living room someday and you said, you know what we should do for the next forty years of our life is roll around in the wilderness to find pictures of the group of seven? Like, how does this idea germinate? I was doing. Um, I'm a traditional rug hooker, and I would do tapestries in traditional rug hooking. And I was doing my first rendition of a painting, and um, it was called. Hills, Killarney, Nelly Lake, and in um, Killarney Park. Well, we didn't know it was in Killarney Park. It was in Hills, Killarney, Nelly Lake by A.Y. Jackson. And I said to my husband, I wonder if this place really exists. And our children were quite young. Dangerous question, apparently. Yes. <laughs> so we went on a canoe trip to Killarney Park, which has a Nelly Lake, and took a copy of the painting with us and uh, climbed around in the hills and found it. We, we couldn't believe it. We really couldn't believe that we could actually find the place that he sat to paint that painting. Did you, when this first started, now that problem, obviously that thrill inspired you to keep doing it. Did you, did you realize though at the beginning how hard some of these were going to be? Because I have to imagine, I mean, there must be some that you still have not been able to find. Oh, yes, no, we, carry, we carry a lot. When we go every summer, we carry a whole bunch that we're looking for, but a whole bunch that we think we might find in that area. And um, and sometimes one fall, we were lucky to find out of 200 paintings, we found 60 of them. Wow. 
Wow. But, uh, um, yeah, so then sometimes you're lucky and sometimes you go for two week-long trips and find nothing. So it, it just depends. Does anyone else do this that you know of? Yes, there, there's a group in Deep River, um, the McElroys. They've been doing it on Grand Lake in um, near Petawawa for a, for a long time. And there's um, a group in um, Sault Ste. Marie that had a movie come out recently. They're doing the, um, the uh, Agua Canyon area. And and, uh, and has it become e- like are you old school in that you only want to find the ones that you have to do massive legwork for, or does something like Google Maps or Google Images now help where you can actually start looking for satellite images from your computer to narrow it down? Oh yes, it's much much easier to find them now than it was even just ten years ago. And but that's not cheating in your no, mind. It's not cheating. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's part of the fun. Okay, it, 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 it's. Uh, uh, it's a detective, as you said, it's a detective work. You, you, uh, you, we just don't head off randomly to try to find them. And uh, um, but the the modern mapping tools of, of satellite images and, uh, and, and, and 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 Google Earth and, and and even Google Street View for the ones that were done in town. So you you can find some of them without actually uh, hmm. leaving your your computer screen. Um, but the the other thing is that there are now many more uh, images available because the, um, uh, the many of the of the galleries have, are putting their collections online, whereas uh, ten years ago we um, um, we really didn't have any idea of how many. Well, we tried to get from... some copies of prints from one of the galleries, and they were going to charge us a hundred dollars each for mm. the prints. So. Um, that was impossible at that point. So, um, do you think the group of seven, if they were somehow, if we could bring them back, and of course that's not going to happen, but if we could bring them, do you think they would even be able to find these places? Or based on your study of them, and I'm assuming you've studied a lot on them, did they just sort of wander around and paint and then leave? Do you think they would actually know where they painted? I think they would. Um, some of them wrote on the back of their paintings. Um, I saw one this weekend at an antique show that was a contemporary of the Group of Seven, and he wrote on it where it was and who he was with when he painted. So some of them did that. Um, But when Tom Thompson died, a lot of his paintings were named by other people. So um, that's where there's a lot of question in Tom Thompson's work because there's several arguments going on over where paintings were done, and there's like five or six or seven different lakes that they all say a certain painting was done on, so um, all the people that knew him. So in order to look for those, you have to sort of rule out each lake. Could you find all the paintings that you found again? Have you mapped and charted where they all were? We, we, we have. We've kept um, uh, notes to ourselves. Um, we hesitate to make uh, some of these uh, publicly known because we have been told information in in, in confidence mm. in some cases. Some of these places are on uh, private land, and, and some of them are actually in rather dangerous places to, to actually walk. Um, uh, both Franklin Carmichael and A.Y. Jackson um, often put themselves in, in, in areas that 
one is actually even uncomfortable to to, to sit, uh, uh, even uh, when you're not uh, <laughs> sitting there painting, but uh, just actually going to the spot. Um, uh, Franklin Car- and so I, I, I hesitate to to uh, publicly uh, let out the the GPS coordinates on the mall. Yeah, because you um, know I picture this terrific website where you can just click on the map and the picture that with the painting <laughs> and your picture both pop up beside it. It would be fascinating to sit there for a few hours and just start to work through all these different places and see where they all were. It's uh, it's 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 really really interesting. Are you are you done now or do you still do this? Oh, we we were just did a canoe trip a couple of weeks ago in in Killarney Park. And on we, Friday we we're going do... we're, we're going on Friday. <laughs> yes, we're going to look for another one on Friday, and uh, we figure we'll keep going as long as we can. We say we tell our audiences that we uh, are saving the city ones for when we need to walk the streets with our walkers. <laughs> That's when we get old. <laughs> That'll be for the second book. Oh yeah, right. But it's you very, still very difficult to write a book. I know. Well, I believe it. But just before I let you go, you also I know that you do a lot of talks on this. This is a. It's not just me. This is an object of great fascination to a lot of people because it's a really cool idea. You do a lot of speeches on this. Yes. Yeah, we have one coming up on on Monday. In fact, well, we have one on on Friday, but that's up in in Huntsville. Huntsville. But we, on on Monday, we're going to be at the Pelham Public Library. So if someone wants to go hear you and see you and hear more about it, the Pelham Public Library, what time on on Monday? 7 o'clock. A free for the public, do you know? It's $4. I'm sure most people could find that for uh, for this kind of information. <laughs> if you've been wandering through the woods on canoe and foot for 40 years, people can fork out 4 bucks to hear about it, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, Jim and Sue Waddington, it is a terrific idea. It's a fascinating book. Where is the book available, by the way, if someone wanted to get this? Because if someone, if you know someone in your life who likes art and you want to get them a good present, this would be the thing to get them. Where could they find it? The Art Gallery of Hamilton probably carries it, and um, it used to be available at Chapters in Indigo. It's available online. Uh, art Gallery of Sudbury, or uh, we have them ourselves. Uh, and, and, and many local bookstores. Yes. In the steps of the group of seven, again, Jim and Sue Waddington. And you can go online. You can find the cover of the book so you know what you're looking for. Listen, if you're going to be buying a book about people finding art by looking at the picture and then picking up the actual thing, go look at the picture of the actual of the book and you can go find the actual thing. You can do your own version of Jim and Sue when you go to the bookstore. It's a lot easier than going to Algonquin Park and wandering through the brush. Jim and Sue, thank you so much for doing this tonight. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Okay, goodbye. That is, uh, I find that so interesting because these are, you're talking about things that are, I mean, I know it's rock, a lot of them, but still there's a lot of changes and, and, and there's no signs, there's no marks that say, hey, sit here and you can see the picture. You got to find this stuff. It's really, if you go online, again, go online and take a look at some of the stuff, some of the book, some of the pictures in the book. It's really interesting to see what they've been able to find. And they, they said 600 I think they said that they have found now. I think that was the number they said. Um, that is uh, that is a ton, ton of work. Really interesting work. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Google sent out a thing today. Uh, it was America's top spelling mistakes. Last year, 2016, each state of the United States, we don't have one for Canada, unfortunately, but each state... Google, because they can collect all this information, remember? Like, everything you do online, this is a reminder for those of you. It doesn't go away. Anyway, 
They gathered all the people who asked or looked for a spelling of a certain word per, by state, and they've collated it. And now they can tell us in each state what are the words that people had the most trouble spelling. So we're going to do a. We're going to. We're not going to get through all fifty here. So let's go through a number of them. And Will, you're going to be on the spot. I'm going to ask you the word, and you're going to have to spell it. Am I allowed to Google the answer? No, you are not. Oh. You are not. And you're at a disadvantage, I understand, because you're going to have to do this like probably off the top of your head. You don't yeah. have a lot of time to write. Some people have to write it down to get it. So let's start with an easy one. All right. In Michigan, now this is a little bit, uh, you know what? I'll give you Michigan, but think it's the American spelling, not the Canadian spelling. What is, in Michigan, what is the way you spell gray? G R. A-Y. Correct. G-R-A-Y. How the people in Michigan couldn't spell gray, especially since we've got now like five or whatever movies on 50 shades of gray. Like it's everywhere. It's on billboards. It's on books. People talk about it. Um, All right. You are correct. One for one. Let us move to New York. Not a word I would think would be a lot of trouble for people to spell, but the New Yorkers had the most trouble spelling Beautiful. How do you spell beautiful? B-E-A-U-T-I-F-U-L. Correct again. That's two for two. That, again, would not seem to be that difficult. I don't know why New Yorkers were struggling with that. Let us continue. Another easy one. From the great state of Florida. I feel like I'm doing... um, election returns right now on presidential election night as we bounce around to all the different states. Uh, We've gone from New York. New York has gone towards the Democrats. Now we're going to Florida. This is one that's up for grabs. Uh, The only way they get it is if they can spell tomorrow. How do you spell tomorrow? T-O-M-O-R-R-O-W. Not hard. Correct again. Will is on a roll. Three for three. I think most people put in two M's. I think that's the problem with tomorrow. Could be. All right. Let's go down to Texas. And again, some of these... I'm not entirely sure uh, why they're spelling these words that much. But anyway, niece, as in nephew and niece. How do you spell niece? N-E-I-C-E? N-I-E-C-E. All right. Uh, So you are a Texan right now. You are having trouble spelling the word niece. Uh, Oklahoma also is gray. Uh, there was another one that was gray, I saw. All right, but we'll skip over that one. Uh, American spelling. Remember, American spelling now. Let's try New Mexico with neighbor. How do you spell neighbor? American spelling. Oh, man. Uh, N-E-I... Uh, I'm going to say they just say H. B-O-R? Is that it? No. They, N-E-I-G-H-B-O-R. We use the U, but um, oh, but they, they couldn't oh, spell neighbor. I'm such a stickler for the Canadian O-U, and See, I forgot it this time. Uh, Idaho and California, the word that trips them up, and uh, Indiana. Although, why Indiana? And why, oh, what else we got up here? Connecticut. Why in the world Connecticut and these other ones would have a desert? How do you spell Desert. D-E-S-S-E-R-T? That's dessert. Darn it. No, no that's desert. No, that's dessert. <laughs> I'm tricking you. Did I get it you or got, not? You got, well, what did you say? One S or two? I said two S's. One S. All right. Um, Maine. And Maine's not the only one. There's uh, Maine and Montana. These are clean places, apparently. 
because they have trouble spelling vacuum. How do you spell vacuum? V-A-C-C-U-M-E. V-A-C-U-U-M. Really? Yep. Wow. Two U's. I think it's the only, it might be the only word in English that has two U's. Is that one that's spelled differently in different countries? Mm. I mean, outside of... No. I don't think so. I don't think it is either. All right. All right. Here is... Uh, okay. Let, what, what state is this? Sorry. I just got to figure this one out. This is... Um, I think it's... Mm, I think it's in the District of Columbia, which would actually make sense. The smallest of the states on the map. And actually, when you hear this word, it makes sense that they would be asking about this word because it's the place where, you know, there's a little pomposity going on. Croissant. Oh, or croissant, if you yeah. want to say it. Croissant. Um, C-R-O-I-S-A-N-T. S-S-A-N-T. Uh. All right. We will let's get you some uh let's get to some of the easier ones now. Alabama. Why Alabama has trouble spelling the word tongue, I'm not sure, but they can't spell tongue. How do you spell tongue? T O N G U E? Absolutely right. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> uh all right. Let's go to some of the weirder ones now. All right. Yes, um, please. Because we've got well, hold on. Before we get to the weird ones, I'll stay with a couple other easy ones. Ohioans. Ohioans? whatever you call them, uh, struggle with the word banana. That may be the easiest one out there. How do you spell banana? <laughs> I have to remember a Gwen Stefani song. Um, <laughs> A-N-A-N-A. Yeah. Banana. That's, okay. that's not hard, is it? I think how people... Is, how is banana hard? I think they end up writing banana probably. Yeah, maybe, maybe, but still, it's like, how is banana going to be a hard word to spell? Even if you have to write it down, it's, you know, it's not that difficult, I wouldn't think. But these are, again, we're talking about Google came up with the top spelling mistakes, the words by state that cause people the most problems. Let us continue here. Um, where should we go next? Uh, we did that one. We did that one. Um, in Wyoming, before we get to the word, what do you think of when you think of Wyoming? <laughs> like caribou? Caribou? Oh. I, okay, I was going to say cowboys. I was going to say like it's it's okay. the middle it's yeah. it's the middle of the country almost. It's flat plains. I was my picture of Wyoming is kind of laid back cowboy ranch. Yeah. You know, everything's kind of I've been ch- there. It's very pretty. Everything's kind of chill. Um, you know, the funniest joke about Wyoming is what's the capital of Wyoming? W, right? I mean, that, that's, that's, that's the extent of whatever humor we can get about Wyoming. So why the number one most difficult word? Why they're looking this word up? I don't get it. How do you spell ornery? Why would Wyomingites oh. be looking up ornery? But anyway, ornery. Well, maybe because they're not very ornery themselves. Maybe. They don't know how to spell it. How do you spell ornery? O-R-N-E-R-Y. Yes. Easy. Easy. Uh, let's go to Nevada. Some people would have expected this word to show up in Arkansas, but it's in Alabama. Cousin. C-O-U-S-I-N. Yes. Easy. See, some of these are really easy. Uh, definitely. This one is from Oregon. D-E-F-I-N-I-T-E-L-Y. Absolutely. Not hard. None. These are not hard words right now. Um... Now, by the way, in case anyone's thinking, hey, Scott, you've got this map of all these words. I'm really impressed that you know which all these states are. 
believe me, I've got a second map here because I don't know every single one, especially when you get to the east and they're all little tiny like Delaware and Rhode Island. Anyway, um, possible. Possible is a word that caused Vermontites. Vermontians? Vermonters. Whatever they are. Possible. How do you spell possible? That caused them all kinds of problems. P-O-S-S-I-B-L-E. Yes. All right. Okay, good. Is there anything complicated about possible? Yeah, I, don't, I can't I, think of it. Definitely. I, I definitely had trouble with definitely, so I can side with the people who need to look it up. But uh, yeah. uh, Let's go to Virginia. Canceled. C-A-N-C-E-L-L-E-D. Absolutely right. Because that's what happens to all my favorite shows. Yeah, you're up 11 to 5, by the way. Uh, so you're way ahead of the game. Um, we are going to South Carolina. South Carolina. Convenience. Convenience. As you go to the convenience store. See you. How's the I accent? I can't concentrate. I cannot concentrate. See you. I feel like I should be a little blown lady wearing a sundress. You need your fan. Yeah, that's right. I do declare. It's getting warm in here. How do you spell convenience? C-O-N-V-E-N-I-A-N-C-E. I-E-N-C-E. That was, that was something. Um, Tennessee, one of the great states, but when they talk in the elections, you know, when they all do with these campaigns, they're always the great state of, we're now voting from the great state. Everything's the great state of, I'd like it for one time when you go to one of those political rallies and they stand up to give their votes, instead of saying I'm from the great state to say I'm from the, I'm from the okay state of Tennessee. That would be okay state of Oklahoma. I'm from the, the so-so state, the, the adequate state of Idaho. It's acceptable. Yeah. I've, Yes, and now for the, all the delegates from the sometimes too hot state of Nevada. <laughs> um, where was I going here? Tennessee. Courtesy. How do you spell courtesy? C-O-U-R-T-E-S-E-Y. You put in one too many E's. <laughs> Darn. C-O-U-R-T-E-S-Y. Ah. Uh. Um, Kentucky. Maintenance. This one, actually, you know what? This one I can understand Canadians having trouble, because maintenance is a word that gives some people here problems. But what is, how do you spell maintenance? M-A-I-N-T-A-I-N-E-N-C-E. You lost me after the T. M-A-I-N-T-E-N-A-N-C-E. Now we get to the weird ones. All, all right. right? I've, I've warmed you up with all the reasonably easy ones. Okay. Those were easy? Those were the easy ones. Uh... Minnesota. Now, I don't know what they grow in Minnesota other than snow and big fish. They have a lot of great fishing up there like we do in Ontario, and they have a lot of lakes. It's like land of a million lakes or land of a thousand lakes or whatever it is. Um, I don't know if they grow broccoli in Minnesota, but broccoli, maybe this is why, but broccoli is the word that trips them out the most. How do you spell broccoli? B-R-O-C-C. O-L-I. Well done. Hey. You are an, an honorary Minnesotan. That is, that is excellent. You are, uh, you're on the board for the hard ones. Let us go to, uh, what's it? New Jersey, February. This one will trip people up too, February. F-E-B-R-U-A-R-Y. Correct. Yeah. Not February, February. That one's for my grandfather. He was from New Jersey. Okay. Why in the world West Virginia is looking this word up is beyond me. But the word that trips them up the most is giraffe. 
Is there a lot of giraffes roaming the plains of West Virginia? You didn't know about that? I, you know, is there is there like a secondary Serengeti in yeah, the, in West Virginia? They brought over, they came over in the in the, in the ships, and now herds of wild giraffe are roaming free. Yeah. The, the free free range giraffe at the local <laughs> restaurants. Uh, giraffe. How, how do you spell that? I don't know. G I R A F F E. Yes. Hey, you're getting all the hard ones. You're struggling on the easy ones, but you got the hard ones. All right. Let's keep going. We got a few more here. Um, both New Mexico, no, both Arizona and what state is that? And New Hampshire, opposite sides of the country. C- cuisine, nothing similar. I wouldn't think New uh, Arizona and New Hampshire. I don't think there's anything in common between New Hampshire and Arizona, except for their inability to spell the word diarrhea. No. What what is going on in Arizona and New Hampshire that they're typing things into their computer they go, How in the world do you spell diarrhea? <laughs> they're trying to look it up on WebMD. I would just if I yeah, if I had to spell it, I would just go, I'll just stick with flaming trots. <laughs> you know, uh, something like that. I'll come up with a different word. That's that's the secret to all this. If you don't know how to spell a word, choose a different word. But anyway, yeah. how do you spell diarrhea? D I A R E H A? Uh, no, while the words flowed quickly from your mouth, <laughs> uh, not correct. D-I-A-R-R-H-E-A, diarrhea. And what you learned tonight, we got a couple more to go, but what you've learned tonight is stay away from New Hampshire and Arizona, apparently. <laughs> that would be my lesson from today. All right, two more, three more. The state of Arkansas, once again, baffled by why they would be looking up this word, leprechaun. L-E-P-R-E-C-H-A-U-N. Wow! How did you know leprechaun? It's one of my favorite words. You couldn't get diarrhea, but you got leprechaun. (laughs) All right. All right. Okay, last two. And these ones are connected because these are the biggest shocker of the whole bunch on on the board. All these are words that you would say, okay, you know, they may have a trick to them. I don't know why people in these particular states are looking up these words and struggling with them, but okay, whatever. In Wisconsin, what do you think the most misspelled word is? You know... I just gave it to you. Wisconsin? Wisconsin! (laughs) In Wisconsin, the most misspelled word is Wisconsin. Shouldn't that be like a, a... criteria of living there that you can spell your state? I won't even make you spell that one. I want to try. All right, go ahead. W-I-S-S-C-O-N-S-I-N. you got one too many S's at the beginning. W-I-S-C-O-N-S-I-N. And the other. There is another state. Now, this one, I will give them the benefit of the doubt because this is a hard state to spell. But people in Massachusetts can't spell Massachusetts. I had to look that one up the other day. How do you spell it? M-A-S-S-A-C-H-U-S-E-T-T-E-S. Oh, you were so close. I threw in an extra E, didn't you I, did. at the end? You, oh, you did. The other oh, that's rest- why I had to look it up. Uh, the, anyway, that is uh, those are the most misspelled words in the United States, so you can... Um, you know, think about that. I would love to know what the most misspelled words are in, in Canadian provinces. I don't, um, I, I couldn't even, I couldn't even hazard a guess, except I can tell you there was a tweet that just came out from Global in BC, 
Um, and what city is it here? Sorry, I got to just open this up for a second. They were painting the word school on the road for school crossing in the city of Revelstoke. Uh, the, the painters who painted the street in big white block letters wrote S-C-O-H-O-L. Ah, you know, if you're going to do it for anything else, maybe, but school, not so much. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.